but we're very, uh, we're very honored uh, that throughout this whole year of Avelut for our friend uh, Dr. Chuck Feldman's Kornel of Racha, uh, the Jacobs, Patinetti Jacobs of Efrat, dedicated all of the Yom Tif Shurim as we went through the cycle of the year uh, mourning Chuck every time we met up with a Yomtif, uh, Rabbi Bravinder gave a shear dedicated in, uh, in his memory and now as we approach on uh, Kafvav Kislev on the second day of Hanukkah as we approach the first yard site tonight's special shear for Hanukkah is uh, similarly dedicated uh, to his memory and we're glad that the Feldman family is either with us or listening to the recording at some point uh, uh, in, the, in the coming day or so uh, in, in Teaneck and wherever they are. Uh, but we're glad that Daniel, who's with us here all year long in Yerushalayim, uh, is with us tonight, uh, Chuck's son, uh, Dr. Daniel Feldman, uh, to say a few words in his memory prior to this year. Thank you, Rabbi Sachs. And it is truly hard to believe that a full year has passed. And my dad was a good friend of Rabbi Bramder's and a strong supporter of, of Talmud Torah and Eretz Israel and a good friend of so many people here. I just want to share a few thoughts about what the Yurt site and what this past year has meant to me. But before doing so, I want to first, of course, convey my gratitude for this lecture series to Rabbi Bramder, Rabbi Sachs, and, and Atid, as well as to Bati and Eddie. Rabbi Bramander first, my Rebbe, was a loyal friend of my father's until the very end of his life. And my entire family is grateful for the inspiring shirim you've delivered in his memory throughout the past year on each of the Chagim. In this first year of celebrating the Moadim without my dad, Rabbi Bramander, your words of Torah have been a source of solace, and thanks to you and Rabbi Sachs, we have listened to each shirim. My mother especially asked me to express her thanks. The series as a whole was has been underwritten by Bati and Eddie Jacobs, who were more than just friends of my father's, but practically adopt, adoptive children. Your gesture in sponsoring this series goes beyond, the mayor, goes beyond an act of tzedakah. It is an act of healing. And while our loss has been great, like so many things, in this life, it is a burden we share together. And I also want to express public hakaratov to my wife, to Ilana. The heaviest burden of all during a year of Avelut actually falls on one's spouse. And so Ilana deserves my most sincere thanks and constant admiration to you above all, Ilana. Yasher kochech. a few quick words. One year ago, on the day my family finished sitting Shiva, we returned to the cemetery where we had buried my father, Zichonel Avracha, one week before. Eddie, who had served as our Shomer throughout the Shiva, was with us. It was the last day of Hanukkah, and there, in the shivering cold beside the kever, I wondered whether Hanukkah could ever again be a festival of renewal and light for us. The leader of our family, our brightest light, had just been snuffed out. And throughout those dark days of mourning, when we would recite the chapter of Tehillim said on Hanukkah, I would read the final words with incredulity. Would our grief indeed turn to joy? 
We had spent a week eulogizing Dad. Did we dare believe, as the psalmist says, that our clothes rent in grief would be replaced with happiness? But in contemplating that Mizmor Shir Chanukatabayit every day during davening over the past year, I came to realize that one word in the closing pasuk of the parak suggests that our experience was not the first time that private tragedy marred a national celebration of Hanukkah. The final pasuk reads, "Leman yizamercha velo yidom," that I might praise you and not be silent. Yidom that signal word of emotional restraint, reminded me that the original Hanukkah Tabayit was also touched by tragedy. On a day the Mishkan was dedicated, Aaron HaKohen lost two of his sons. And his response to the tragedy, as the Torah poignantly tells us, was to remain silent. Vayidum Aaron. It's a response that reverberates in this parak of Tehillim, and that Hanukkah is also a time of, of elut for us, does not silence our faith in the possibility of miraculous renewal, nor does it darken the luminous memories of joy we have of my father. And so as the calendar returns us to Hanukkah and we gather to mark my father's first yard site on Monday, we identify anew with the mitzvah of lighting the menorah, a mitzvah by which each of us acts like the Kohen Gadol of our own home. Even if our sadness remains very great, we are reminded, as the Pasuk tells us, that a Laila of Bechi can indeed be followed by a Boker of Rina, that despite a terrible blow, we need not remain silent, and that there is a precedent in Hanukkah for dedication and rededication despite personal tragedy. I thank all of you for your presence this evening, for your support over this difficult past year, a year which has brought me and my family from a place of total darkness to the first glimmers of new light. Thank you, and Chag Urim Sameach. Thank you, Daniel. That's the Daniel For the mothers, it's the same. So, I'd like to, um, we'd like to talk about Hanukkah, but this week there's also a parasha, the parasha Vayeshev. You know, the parasha Vayeshev is always connected to Hanukkah. When there's only one Shabbat in Hanukkah, that's the parasha that we read, Vayeshev. The parasha in which Yosef is taken to Mitzrayim. And it's not clear why the calendar is so obstinate about the parasha of Ayeshev. It's the parasha that has to be read. It's the story that has to be told. It's connected intrinsically somehow to Hanukkah. So I'd like to try to explain what the connection between Hanukkah and the parasha of Ayeshev might be. And to do that, I ask you to look at the, uh, let's look first at the, the second source, the Gemara. There are just two sources. The Gemara and Shabbat of Kafbet Amadal. If you know that uh, there is no Masechet 
that deals with Chanukah. And that has been uh, the subject of interest of historians, uh, at least since Gratz. Maybe before Gratz, but uh, it's been interesting. How come Chanukah is not in the Mishnah? How come there's no Masechet of Chanukah? But we're not going to deal with that today. The Halachot of Chanukah, however, are in the Gemara. They're in the Gemara in Perek Bamem Madlikin in Masechet Shabbat. Bamem Madlikin is the Mishnayot, at least the first Mishnayot, are about how to light the candles on Friday night. You know, you may have heard, the Jews light, Jewish women especially, light candles Friday night. The reason for that is, so there should be light. If you don't light the candles, there won't be any light. The light specifically that is referred to is the light that's necessary in order to eat a meal on Shabbat. Friday night. Because if you don't have light, you're not going to eat. You'll eat before Shabbat. And the Chachamim were very concerned that we would eat a meal on Friday night on Shabbat. And that that was part of the obligation of Shabbat. As a result of the fact they've developed, as you know, a whole Torah of candle lighting. Uh, What kind of oil to use? What kind of wicks are appropriate? And uh, while it's not mentioned in the Gemara, but in succeeding generations, we've quarreled with ourselves about how many lights to light. The original answer to that question was, well, as many as you need. Because the idea of lighting the candles was so that you could see when you ate the meal. Today, uh, we light the candles, I think, for more mystical reasons. I'm not always sure what they are, but they seem to be very serious. Um, so in that parak, in that parak which discusses the oils, the wicks, the candles of Shabbat, in that parak the Gemara suddenly reminds itself about Chanukah and starts explaining to us all of the dinim of Chanukah. Now on Daf Kaf Bet Amur Aleph at the top of the page, which is what we are are starting from, right? It's in the middle. In the middle of Hilchot Chanukah, the Gemara says this. Ne'er Chanukah, if you look at the source, you'll see it's there. Ne'er Chanukah, Shaita Lemala Me'esrim Ama Psula. This is a kind of idea that if you light the Chanukah lights more than 20 Ama above the ground, now, this is an Ama. But today it's very popular to be very precise about measurements. I'm from a different world. I haven't got a clue. But I know that an armor, that this is an armor, you know, from here to here. I don't know how much that is. But if you multiply it by 20, so, you think this is 20 armor? So, so let's say it is. So this is what the Gemara says. Don't light the Hanukkah lights Higher than 20 amma. You shouldn't do that. Why not? Kisuka ukimavoi. The Gemara comes up with some kind of very odd reason. It says, you know, there's, you can't, when you build a sukkah, you shouldn't build the sukkah higher than 20 amma, because then you won't be able to see the schach, and you won't know what you're doing there in the sukkah. Um, 
Also, Mavoi, a Mavoi is a, a, a place that needs an Eruf. And an Eruf should also not be more than 20 Amotai. So here the Gemara, the Gemara says, we've got this principle, 20 Amma, let's apply it to the Hanukkah candles. But of course, this is not, um, this is not so clear. Because what's the idea of Hanukkah candles? The idea of Hanukkah candles is that, uh, at least an idea, is Pirsume Nisa. Pirsume Nisa means you want people to know that something remarkable happened on Hanukkah. So I guess you would put, where would you put the candles? In the place that most people could see the light. Isn't that where we'd put it? Um, so what's wrong with 20 Amo? I mean, did you ever see these you know, big projectors that, uh, you know, something happens in the street and there's an accident and then the police come and they have these, they raise these projectors up on high poles and they light it up so that no one else could see and then when the cars come driving in, they have more accidents, right? There's a special plan that the police have that they shouldn't waste their time, you know, just on one accident. They're able to deal with numerous accidents, which they, of course... But what's wrong with 20 Amma? What's wrong with putting the Hanukkah candles higher? I mean, it may be a little difficult for me to get up there. But you can do it. You can do it. I remember when I was in Moscow. I was in Moscow for... I always say I was there for a year. I was there for actually more than a year, but I came home during that time. So I say it's fair to say I was there for a year. I was there for a year. So we were under the influence, you know, of Chabad. You know Chabad? You've heard of them? Lubavitch? Somebody, you, no one has ever heard of Lubavitch? So, so we were on, in Moscow, we were under the influence of Lubavitch. Now you, you know that Lubavitch, the Chabadnikim, they think that lighting the Hanukkah candles in the middle of the street is the way Moshe Rabbeinu told B'nai Yisrael to do it. That, that's what they think. And they will go to extraordinary lengths to be able to do that. Now, I was in this yeshiva in Moscow, and I was the Rosh HaYeshiva. So they decided that it was only appropriate that the Rosh HaYeshiva should light Hanukkah candles. So I said, fine. I figured lighting Hanukkah candles, you go to a window. It was about 50 below in <laughs> Moscow then. You go to a window, and, and you light the Hanukkah candles. No. <laughs> We're lighting candles out in the middle of the street. <laughs> next to some public building or other where everybody will understand that we're in charge of everything. <laughs> well, this is like one of the secret messages of Chabad. So I said, I said, you can't do that. You can't do this. And why not? Because I said, you can't light a match <laughs> out in the street. It's it's, everything is frozen. Don't worry, Rabbi. They said, and so, okay, so I didn't worry. And suddenly I see a truck come along like a fire truck with a ladder going up to heaven and a, and a tremendous menorah hanging from someplace or other. And then a, another guy's come running in with an oxy-acetylene torch. <laughs> you know what that is? You know, it's like scary if somebody points it at you. It's, so he comes with this oxy-acetylene torch. He says, here, Rabbi, go for it. You know, and I was... Almost, I was out in the street for 15 minutes. I was I couldn't move. They said, "All right, warm up." You know, they warmed me up with the with the torch, and I went up, and I and I did it. But they said, they said, high up 
It's got to be high up so that all the Russians will be able to see it. So over 20 Amma, it's a mystery. Why doesn't the Gemara want you to do it over 20 Amma? That's the first part of the, of the Gemara. Then the Gemara goes on and says, oh, I'm in the wrong place. Then the Gemara goes on and says, uh, quotes, quotes some and it says, my dichtiv, at the end of the third line, it says, my dichtiv, vaboreik mai. You know, this is called a non sequitur. Right? If you were writing a composition in grade three, you know, the teacher would apply a red pen to this line and say, huh? You know, what were you doing when you were writing this? Were you watching television or something? This is called a real, this is a, an ultimate non sequitur. Because not even Rashi is going to tell us well, how it fits in together. But let's see what it says. It says, that's what, that's what the Pasuk says. Now we know where that Pasuk is from. It's from the parasha of Vayeshev. And Aborek Einbo Mayim means something. On the, on the simplest level it means the pit was empty. It didn't have any water in it. Now what pit were they talking about? Was, is the Torah talking about? The pit that the brothers threw Yosef into was Haborek Einbo Mayim. Okay? And then the Gemara itself uh, explains There's like a typical kind of rabbinic question based on the assumption that the Torah should be very frugal in its presentation of events and that any kind of uh, extra phrasing, extra words, extra notions have to be kind of noticed. That's what interpretation is. Interpretation is about noticing what's there that might not be there. And, so the Gemara says, if the bar is rake, if the pit is empty, don't we know she'en ba'mayim? Why does the Torah have to tell us ain't ba'mayim? Question. So what's the answer? Ma'im ain't ba'avol nechashim va'akrabim yeshbo. In other words, it's not what it seems. The Pasuk is not saying what you think it's saying. Haborek would mean that Yosef was safe. In other words, they put him in this bar more like uh, putting him in jail. They put him in jail. They didn't, uh, they didn't put him... They <laughs> How are you doing? It's a very friendly shear. You can come anytime you want. <laughs> so, haborek, haborek can mean one of two things. But what it does mean, uh, it could mean that they put him in jail. They put him in the bar because they didn't want him to run away. The other meaning is, haborek, meaning that it wasn't so safe. It wasn't something that they did Purposely. Now, before we get back to this story of what the brothers did with Yosef, I just want to finish the Gemara. The Gemara says at the end, uh, um, uh, uh, this one, two, three, four, five lines from the bottom, 
אמר רבא, נר חנוכה, מצווה להניחה בטפח הסמוכה לפתח. נר חנוכה, and this is like a custom that has been uh, rejuvenated in Yerushalayim. Many people in Yerushalayim light Hanukkah candles near the door, outside of their house, near the door. That's what it says in the Gemara. Their uh, Hanukkah, mitzvah lanicha batefach, this is a tefach. Tefach, fist. Ama, that's an ama. So tefach is less than ama, and it means very close to. You have to put it very close to the petach habayit. Petach habayit is the door, the door of the house. The Gemara then later on says, which side of the door? The side of the mezuzah or the side against the mezuzah? But these are the, the halachot. So that in this Gemara, in this Gemara, the story of Yosef being thrown into the pit is told in between two halachic statements. The first halachic statement is, don't put the menorah more than 20 amma up high. Something we don't understand. And the other halachic statement is, put the menorah near the door. Near the door of your house. Since most people lived in, in uh, homes that had the entry door was on the ground floor, it meant not only not 20 amma high, but at the doorway. Mamash. Mamash at the doorway. And so it remains kind of unclear what the order of things in the Gemara is. Now you could say, order shmurah, right? Which is something that uh, uh, some people like to say. But you could also say, uh, there's got to be some, you know, even if even if you would say this story about Yosef and the pit had to go someplace. And when they ran out of the Gemara, you know, they, they edited the whole Gemara and they still had that story left over. And they had to push it into something. So this is the only like blank space that there was. Not such a comforting idea. Let's see what happened to Yosef. Look at the first at the first uh, story. Vayomru ish el echav baal chalomot Ish el echav refers to the brothers, Yosef's brothers. They call Yosef ish chalomot, the man of the dreams, which might mean which might mean that they knew that the dreams had truth in them. I mean, why would they call him the man of dreams? Either because they thought he was crazy or they thought he was sane. I mean, what are the two possibilities? So I think that they understood that the dreams, and Chazal said that as well, that the dreams that Yosef dreamed or dreamt, dreamed, the, the dreams were serious. They were serious. And the only way that they could deal with the dreams, the only way they could usurp Yosef from his position as the king in the dreams was to kill him. There's no other possibility. So the second pasuk says, Vata, lechu v'nahargehu, v'nashlichenu b'echad haborot, v'amarnu chayarachalatnu, v'nirema'yu chalomotav. Now this is, uh, you know, for people who have like literary, uh, a literary feel for things, you see that even here in this pasuk, I mean, the brothers are acting up some kind of psychological inability that they have to deal with the reality of Yosef. They can't deal with it. They say, they say, we'll kill him. And then, 
he won't be the dreamer anymore. Because his dreams are about him. And if he's dead, the dreams are no longer applicable. Nashli Sehu Bechada Barot will throw him into a, a pit. He'll never be found. No one will find him, or if anybody finds him, they won't know who he is. And that will be the end of the story. Va'amarnu, and we go back to our father, Yaakov, will tell Yaakov, he was eaten up by a, a terrible, a terrible animal. Uh, and we'll see, you know, like little children say that. We'll see. We'll see what you'll be like. We'll see as though he was there and they were talking to him. The next pasuk, pasuk kafalev, vayishmara uvein. Now, Ruven is, of course, a tragic personality in all of this. On the one hand, he's one of the brothers, and he feels very deeply that his position has been usurped. He's the oldest brother. He deserves to be the king. And yet, here is Yosef, the youngest brother, or next to the youngest brother, telling everybody that he is going to be the king. And yet, Ruven has temporary... Uh, uh, temporary authority. He, he, he's not the king, but he's the oldest brother. And, and he has to somehow, he takes this responsibility. He takes it, even though he probably would also like to see uh, Yosef done away with, but he takes this responsibility as the oldest brother that he says, Vayishmara uvein miyadam. He saved Yosef. But it's not clear that his intention was to save Yosef, because after all, what does the Pasuk say? The Pasuk says, Vayomer lo nakenu nafesh. Now Chazal have talked about and thought about and argued about, what does that mean, lo nakenu nefesh? So everybody knows, there's first degree murder, and there's manslaughter, and then there's like, just being there. So what Reuven might have said was, Lo nakenu nafesh means we should not kill him uh, using our own bodies and hands. We don't want to kill him. We want to let him die. And there's a difference between those two things. So he said, Lo nakenu nafesh. Let's not be the ones who kill him, Reuven said. But he knew. I mean, either if I want to be sympathetic to Ruvain, or I don't want to be sympathetic to Ruvain. If I want to be sympathetic to Ruvain, I would say, Ruvain understood that he could not change the way things were going. He couldn't, he couldn't make them all love Yosef all of a sudden. They were absolutely devoted to the idea of killing Yosef. And there's nothing he could do, but he said this. He said, why should we be the ones who kill him physically ourselves? Uh, don't spill his blood, which we call murder. Throw him into this, into this pit. So the Pasuk makes this comment that Reuven was not able to join 
in this murderous crowd. He tried to stop it by saying, let's throw him into a pit. But the question remains, of course, why did they agree? I mean, there were all these brothers, and there's Ruvain. Ruvain says, don't kill him. And they say, we want to kill him. But well, how, how, was, how did he convince them? How did he convince them that, that, that he should, he's right, and that they shouldn't throw him into the pit, but they should, uh, throw, that they shouldn't, th- they shouldn't kill him, but they should throw him into a pit. How did he convince them? So the, the Pasuk says, uh, kasher <coughs> ba Yosef el echav, Yosef came along and they took off the Tonetapasim. You know that there's this Broadway show, Tonetapasim. It has some kind of English name. So, it says, And they took him and they threw him into the pit. Now, Chazal say, Chazal say, that Reuven said, throw him into this pit. And they went and they threw him into a pit. And the a pit was different from the, this pit because of Haboreik Einbo Mayim. Haboreik Einbo Mayim. So Chachomim say that Einbo Mayim means there was no water. I mean, they looked into the pit, they said there was no water. But there were snakes and scorpions. There might have been snakes and scorpions in the pit. So that what Reuven accomplished what Reuven accomplished was that the people the people who were involved, all the brothers, Yosef Yosef's brothers did not kill him uh, murder him by hand but they were willing to let him die. They were willing to let him die and the proof that they were willing to let him die was that the Pasuk says Habo there was nothing you could, couldn't see in the, anything in the pit, but the Nechashim and the Akrabim, the snakes and the scorpions might have been hiding in all the crevices around the side, and they didn't check that out. It was, they were willing, they were willing and happy, they accepted Ruvain's uh, idea that they shouldn't kill Yosef by hand, physically, they shouldn't murder him, but they did not accept Ruvain's idea that they should throw him into Habar Hazet, into this pit that I, Ruvay, have checked out, and it seems to be a safe, a safe place to be, but they threw him in some other pit, where they hoped, I guess, they hoped that the end would be, uh, the end would be nigh. So that the story of the brothers, I mean, the difference between the brothers and Ruvay, is that Ruvay wanted to save Yosef, although we don't know what he wanted to save him for, and the brothers were willing to let him die. Even though, even though it wasn't clear what was in that pit. It wasn't clear. Eimbomayim means that they were probably Nechashim and Akrabim. It wasn't that they knew that they were Nechashim and Akrabim. Because then Ruvain would have stopped them. But it was rather that it was a pit. Amongst pits. And pits usually have un, uh, uh, unsavory things unsavory things in them. So that the pit, the pit uh, is a model of something that is unknown, but bad. It's not clear. 
It's not clear what, you know, I'm trying to avoid clarity. I'm trying to do what I want to do by throwing Yosef into an unclear place, into a place that is not, that is not appropriate for human uh, 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 habitation, but not because he will die necessarily, but he might die. He might be killed. It might happen. So the story of the brothers and Yosef, the story that is quoted in the Gemara in between these two halachot, the halacha of 20 ama, that you, should, you shouldn't put your candles higher than 20 ama, and the other halacha that says you should put your candles by the doorpost when you come into your house, the story in between is a story about taking advantage of a lack of clarity. A lack of clarity. They said to Reuven, okay, we'll do what you say. We'll throw him into a pit. We're not going to put him in, throw him into the clear pit that you designated, but we'll throw him into a pit. And throwing him into a pit, well, you know, whatever happens, happens. Whatever happens, happens. So the brothers took a stand for lack of clarity. Yosef, on the other hand, if I take just a moment to talk about Yosef, Yosef doesn't respond. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't have a, he doesn't have a personality in this story. He doesn't fight with his brothers. He doesn't argue with his brothers. He doesn't say, no, I don't like this pit, I like that pit. Uh, uh, or he doesn't say, get me my galoshes before I get over into the pit. He doesn't say anything. Nothing. Yosef is going to become the savior of the world. And, of course, the savior of the Jewish people in Egypt. He has nothing to say. He's not even there. He's not even there in the story, the storyline. You know, if you had to make a play out of this, so Yosef would be played by nobody. He's not there. Yosef is not there. Why is Yosef not there? Why is Yosef not there? Because it must have been absolutely clear to Yosef that he, the man of the dream, was marching resolutely towards that dream. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter whether they threw him into this pit or they threw him into that pit. They took off his robes or they didn't take off his robes. Yosef knew that he was being watched by a Kodesh Bochum and taken on a path that was irreversible. So that Yosef sort of looked at his brothers and he said, you guys are fighting a losing battle. There's nothing you could do. And therefore, there was no reason. It was, Yosef didn't need approval. He didn't need sanction. He didn't need his brothers supporting him or helping him or moving him along because he knew that he was being moved like a, like a, like a chess piece on a chessboard by a Kaddish Bochu to checkmate. Right? It's going to happen. He knew that it was going to happen. He didn't tell the dreams to his brothers or to his father because he wanted to show off. He went to tell the dreams to them because he thought it would be good for them to know what was going to be. Everybody wants to know what's going to be. It was a kind of a kindness uh, that, that, that he, he had to tell them the dreams. And here, Yosef is looking at his brothers, and he can't understand what they're doing. He can't understand why they are, uh, are acting against what must be. The brothers, on the other hand, the brothers, on the other hand, are... They say, chance. There's chance. There's, there's things, sometimes things happen that shouldn't happen. 
uh, will throw him in the pit and, and who knows what will happen. That was the position of the, of the brothers. And so when the Pesach said, Mayim Ainbo, there's no water, but that doesn't mean that they went to check out Adarabah. They felt that if, uh, if something terrible happens to Yosef, all the better. All the better. But what Uvein said to them was, we go back to Uvein, don't take an active stand against divine intervention. If God has told us through the dreams of Yosef that Yosef will become whatever, the only way that he can be beaten, right? I, I, I reference Haman. Remember Haman? Haman. Purim. That Haman. What did Haman do? He peeled poor. Who hagoram. You know what poor is? A poor is something that works against some other kind of predetermination. Now Haman knew that destroying Am Yisrael would be a tough call. And he had to marshal the, I don't know, the underworld agents, the Satanistic agents, to fight against B'nai Yisrael with him. So how did he do it? How did he do it? The Goral. The Goral means some other force is going to determine. Right? A Goral, it's out of my hands. A Goral. What's a Goral? A pious. What's a pious? A lottery. But I mean, it's the kind of lottery where you have a little piece of paper and you spin the wheel and you take out one. That's a pious. So it's out of my hands. And so what did, what did they, what did he do? Hamani said, let's, he did something very unmilitary. He said, let's decide on the day that we're going to call the forces to fight against B'nai Israel in a lottery. Now, no soldier does that. They say, let's check the weather, let's check the, the land, the, 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 how we could do it, where we deploy our forces. That's what they say. They don't say, we'll just pick a, a name at random. But Haman picked the name at random because he wanted, he felt that there were forces that would act against God's will and against Am Yisrael if you attracted them somehow. You know, like you. You said, oh, we're with you guys. And so that's what, it's similar to Bil'am and Balak. Right? Bil'am and Balak. Bil'am said, I mean, Balak said to Bil'am, curse them. And Bil'am said, okay, let's, we'll give some sacrifices first to see if we could sort of get control of the world before I curse them. So, so the brothers, the brothers were not, thought that they would be able to Change the way that the world was going, that the Baal HaChalomot, that the dreamer Yosef was dreaming things that were not going to happen, and the way that they were going to do that was by creating uncertainty. Right? Chalomot, the Chalomot of Yosef were certainty of Yosef. He knew it was going to happen, and they had to break that. They had to break that certainty. The way they broke that certainty was by throwing him into a pit. Because once he was in that pit, nobody knew what was going to happen. There were other forces. I don't want to tell you that, that, that you could uh, mythologize the snakes and the akrabim and the scorpions. They can be 
mythologized, right? You know, they, they play roles in different places. They're, they're bad. They're bad. The snake, bad fellow. Bad fellow, always interested in doing us in. Right? Always interested in doing us in. So they were snakes and they were akrabim. In that pit, it means that, it means that the pit represents uncertainty against the certainty of the Baal HaChalomot. And so they took off his robes, they derobed him. And you know when the person is, you can't derobe a king. Right? You can't derobe a king. If you derobe the king, he's not a king anymore. I mean, did you ever see Queen Elizabeth not dressed exactly the way she's always dressed? Never. I mean, I don't, well, I mean, she goes running with the hounds or something, but it's all Balchuti. It's all a kind of kingly outfit that she wears. She, she wears certain clothes for certain occasions. She's definitely not with it. But she's always the Queen of England. Always. And that's what a king is. A king is somebody who's always a king. You can't take off from being a king. And so they took the robes off of, off of Yosef. They, they undressed him. They tried to weaken his, his persona as he approached this pit. And they thought they would be able to create doubt. They would be able to create, that's the story that is told in the Torah about Yosef, his brothers, and Reuven. Now let's get back to Hanukkah. Hanukkah, what do you want to do? You want to do Pirsume Nisa. What do you want to do? You want to tell everybody it was a great time and something happened and there was Hanukkah and there was a war and we won. I don't know if we're so interested in saying that today. We're having a little difficulty promoting our good for their faith at the, at the moment. But that's what we want to do. So the, the, the Chachomim say, Chachomim said not more than 20 amma. You can't put it higher than 20 amma. Well, why not? As we said in the beginning, the higher you put it. You know, light has this quality. It just fills up the space. It's not like if you hold it far away, you don't get it. But it just keeps filling up the space. So 20 amma, 20 amma sounds like a good thing. 30 amma, 50 amma, you put up all those candles all over the, the city of Yerushalayim on top of all the hotels instead of at the bottom. Right, that would be great. Why not? Why not 20 Amma? What's the difference? What's the difference between high and low? The second halacha is Petach Abayit. Petach Abayit. You put the candles next to the opening of your house. You know, modern halachic uh, uh, deciders have you know, a lot of things they could talk about. It sounds like a simple halacha, but if you have to go up steps to get into your house, you put it up by the door or down by the bottom of the steps or either this side or that side. There's a lot of talk about that. A lot of talk about that. But the halacha is that you put the candles near the door. Now, the introduction to Elchot Shabbat and Migmara in Shabbat is Ner Ishu Beito. How many candles do you have to light? How many mitzvot of lighting the candles of Hanukkah do you have to do? If you have ten people in your household, 
how many have to light the Chanukah menorah? So the basic halacha, the Gemara says, is ner ishu beto, a candle, a single candle for the entire household. Which I think means, which I think means that this is a statement, this ner uishu beto is a statement about the essential nature of the mitzvah of Chanukah. The mitzvah of lighting the candles of Chanukah is not commemorative in the sense that something happened and I remember that it happened. Something happened and I light the candles because I want to share my memory. I want to share it in Chutzlaretz, in the diaspora with people who don't know anything about being Jewish. And in Eretz Yisrael, I want to share it with Jews who are not so interested in that, in that uh, particular, in that particular. That's what, that's what I want to do. I want to share. But the Gemara says, Ner Ishu Beito, which on the one hand means one candle for the entire household. But it says that the mitzvah of lighting the candles on Hanukkah is somehow connected to the bayit. It's not just that I want to tell everybody that something happened a long time ago and that the Hashmonaim were able in some manner to overcome the Greek army and to reestablish a political state in Eretz Israel, in spite of the fact that the Rambam is quite amazed at all of this. He said, you know what happened on Hanukkah? The Rambam says in the beginning of Hilchot Hanukkah, the Rambam says, you know they won? I mean, after all, you know, the Rambam spent his formative, formative years of his life running, running away every time the Muslims, the Christians, you know, they were all uh, made trouble for the Jews. And the Rambam and his family spent 20 years running from one place to another. The Rambam comes to Hanukkah and he says, you know what happened on Hanukkah? Political freedom, political dependence for 180 years. Now everybody knows that those 180 years were not the proudest years of Jewish history. It was not true that the children of the Chashmon Naim were, uh, were like uh, Abaye and Rova. Like they spend all their time in the yeshiva of Sheva Eva. Quite, that's not the point, but the Rambam felt that political freedom had such a powerful impact on the nature of things that he just couldn't help being overwhelmed by the fact that this political freedom went on for 180 years, even though the kings of Israel were not good kings and the people were not always good people. Nevertheless, he stands amazed at it. So we would be remiss in saying that at that time, the Chashmonaim, the Chashmonaim managed to set up a state that we are proud of. A state that in which everything was, was perfect, right? Like the state of Israel. They, they, they didn't do that. They weren't able to make perfection. But that, according to the Gemara, is not the message of the Ne'er Hanukkah. It's not the message of the candle. The message of the candle is that there is Ishu Beito. You understand that Hanukkah was not so popular at the beginning. You know, you win a war, everything's good, everybody's happy, you go to the bar, you drink a little bit, you sing and you dance. 
It was only upon reflection, the Shana Acheret, that they, that they realized that they had a prize here. And that prize was only realized after the Churban Beta Mikdash, after the destruction of the, of the temple, when they understood that the light of the Beit HaMikdash, that the light that was lit in the Beit HaMikdash every night until the morning, right? You know that the light in the Beit HaMikdash went out the windows. The windows were shkufim atumim. You know, you see a taggart fort. They're, they're narrow on the inside and wide on the outside. So I guess you have a bow and an arrow or one of those, one of those, they look like rifles, but they shoot arrows. What are they called? A cut. Crossbow. Oh, crossbow. Now you see, if you come from the right kind of place, you know about these things. A crossbow. So, so, so that's a taggart fort. They have them all over Israel. I mean, those of you who, who have, uh, who think that touring Israel means going from one hotel to another hotel, maybe I've missed it. But they have taggart forts all over Israel. And, and they, and in the Beit HaMikdash, the windows were made the same way. They were narrow on the inside and wide on the outside. Because the light of the Beit HaMikdash, the light of the Beit HaMikdash, didn't do anybody any good in the Beit HaMikdash. You know why? Because there was no one there. There's nobody in the Beit HaMikdash at night. The, the, the Kohen that went to light the candles at night that was the, you know, he went late in the afternoon, he cleaned everything out, he lit, put in the oil, he lit the candles, and he left. And there was no one else in the Beit HaMikdash. So that the light of the candles of the Beit HaMikdash, they went out the windows. They went out, and, and in some symbolic way, they established, they established the reality of Am Yisrael, the light. Because the light came from the Beit HaMikdash. That was the light of Israel. And Hanukkah turned out to be the continuation of that light. And that's the Ner Ishu Beito. That the light that once came from the Beit HaMikdash, once came from the Beit HaMikdash, the menorah was lit. After it was no longer lit in the Beit HaMikdash, it was lit in everybody's home. Everybody lit the, the candle at home. Ner Ishu Beito. And that candle indicated the house that the light was coming from. And we call, the Gemara calls it Mikdash Ma'at. What's a Mikdash Ma'at? A Beit Knesset. But a home, of course, could also be a Mikdash Ma'at. Certainly the home of the Chazanish and the home of the Mishnaburah, they were Mikdash Ma'at because Torah was what they did. There was nothing else going on. So the light of those homes, the light in those homes, they it just let, went out into the Jewish world and had an effect on that Jewish world. So Ner Ishu Beito is a statement. It's not a reference to something that happened in the past. I mean, what point is there? I've often said this, but you know, like, what point is there in commemorating the fact that God could make the oil last for eight days? I mean... It's almost silly to, 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 to mention. God, after all, did create the world. And creating the world seems to me to have been a major undertaking. You know, and, and lighting, and having the oil burn for eight days instead of for one day 
seems to me to be a kind of, if you're speaking about God, like kind of trivial. Like, you know, okay, you know, God could also make the oil burn longer than you expected. And that, to commemorate a miracle. I mean, on Pesach, we commemorate us, the change that we underwent. But, you know, we don't commemorate uh, uh, Kriyat Yamsuf. I mean, okay, we say Az Yashir, but we do say it every single day. We don't commemorate Az Yashir. I mean, do we go running into a pool and trying to, uh, I don't know, see if the waters will split or something? We don't do that. I mean, we, we commemorate Pesach. We don't commemorate Dam, Tzvardeya, Kinim. It's just part of the story. It's not something that we commemorate. We don't take frogs and paste them all over our house and say, yippee, frogs. We don't do that. We, we, we have nothing to do with these frogs and these, these lice. Well, lice in Israel is still... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the, that makkah has not been completely eradicated yet. <laughs> I think after the, after the lice, it, it, it's right. The Kodesh both forgot to tell them to go home. <laughs> Wherever home is. <laughs> so Hanukkah is the holiday of the, of the home. It's about the light in the home. And therefore, therefore, it's not just the light that is important, but it's the place from which the light is emanating. That's what, that's what the, the halacha is. Because it has to be, in every home, it has to be light. That has to be the openness. That has to be the 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 understanding, the 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 the, uh, uh, the lack of doubt that comes today from the home. There's no other place where you can get any of that except from the home. So the Gemara says. So the Gemara says, don't put it more than twenty amma. You'll see the light, but you won't see the home. Put it next to the door. There you'll see the light and you'll know that it belongs to people, to a home. The brothers try to overwhelm the course of history as Yosef presented it to them, the Baal HaChalomot, by placing him in a world of doubt. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how it's going to turn out. At least that's what the brothers thought. On the other hand, on the other hand, Hanukkah, Hanukkah is not about, it's not about doubt, but it's about clarity. And it's about the clarity that since the Churban Beit HaMikdash has to come from the, uh, has to come from the home. I'll just add a word and say that, uh, that the people who know the Feldmans, uh, of which I am a, a fortunate member of, of a group, the group, I'm a fortunate member, uh, know that uh, the house is very special. And the house, though, is made by Dr. Feldman, Zichron Rocha and his wife, Rella, uh, and the children, and the issues, the things that happen, uh, uh, I mean, are always an attempt, always an attempt, I found, to clarify things, to make them more reasonable, clear, to bring the light of Torah into their home. And so, I think it's, it's uh, appropriate that we said what we said about this auspicious occasion. Have a good Shabbos.